Hi, I'm Rob Calder, host of Addictions Edited, the podcast brought to you by the Society for the Study of Addiction. We've got a special episode of the podcast for you today, all about helping people who use drugs to find and stay in employment. I was lucky enough to talk to three people who work on WDP's Individual Placement and Support Initiative, it's IPS, about what they do, about some of the challenges and the joys of helping people find work. I met with Rebecca Odedra, Harj Bansil and Claire Bowie in March 2022 on Zoom to find out more. We joined the conversation just as Rebecca, Harj and Claire introduced themselves. So uh, Rebecca, would you start first? Yeah, sure. I'm the Head of Reintegration for WDP. I've been working in the organisation for just over eight years now and been working in the education, training and employment field for just over 15 years in both the homeless sector and also drug and alcohol. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Lovely to meet you, Rebecca. And you won't be able to tell this um, uh, from people who are listening, but going clockwise around a Zoom board. So um, Harj, could you introduce yourself? Hi everyone, I'm Harj Bansal, I'm the IPS Interwork Team Manager working for WDP and I've been uh, with the service for uh, just over three years, Uh, so in 2019 I joined early 2019 and have been uh, working in education, training and employment for over 15 years. Uh, Lovely and and welcome uh, you two to the podcast and finally Claire Bowie, uh, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Claire. I'm the Senior IPS Employment Specialist and I have been with the IPS Projects and WDP uh, since 2019, so just over three years. And I've been working with individuals who have substance misuse um, difficulties, um, supporting them to access employment for about six years now. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, Welcome to you all. So uh, before we get into the kind of detail of of what it is, how it works and what the fun parts and the challenging parts are. Um, I mean, I guess the kind of whole thing about employment has 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 become um, has become more uh, more common in treatment services over the past ten or twenty years, uh, and perhaps would be even more developed now had uh, had funding been more prevalent in the last ten years. Certainly, uh, Rebecca, can you tell me why helping people find? Uh, and supporting people in employment. Uh, Why is that important for people who use drugs? Um, I think what we have found over time, and also the evidence leads to tell us this, is that employment is that key part for people's recovery. And I think, you know, treatment um, often for many, many years has concentrated on the core part of treatment. But what has been a big part, which is really important for people, is what happens next when they finish their treatment journey Where do they go after that? And things like training and employment and specifically employment is just such a big part of people's recovery. We hear it time and time again about this being so important to people in terms of people's focus, in terms of people giving them something meaningful to do, to reintegrate them back into society, to actually um, bring them back into whatever's very important for them as well. And I think as many of us know, employment um, is such a big part of our daily lives. We spend so many hours doing it and it's, it's no different for anyone in recovery, I'd say. And I think that's what we've learned from people as well over time that um, Dame Carol Black's report actually refers to it as being the second thing that service users say getting a job just means so much more um, for people in such a wider area and such so many different benefits that come with it as well 
Uh, so, uh, Rebecca, uh, before we get into the before we get into the detail um, of IPS, can you just give us an idea of kind of how it began, um, uh, how it started, um, and, and where it operates within uh, within London? I think it is at the moment, isn't it? So it started in 2018, where uh, West London Alliance were procuring the largest uh, addictions contract in IPS alongside some of the Public Health England trials that were due to be taking place as well. And uh, there was quite a unique contract at that time because it had 19 stakeholders, which included also um, a social impact bond as well in it. And um, part of the contract was a payment by results contract as well of outcomes based. And so it was led by WLA, who I've mentioned, West London Alliance, but also as part of the contract, um, MHEP and Social Finance were the managing agent. So in uh, 2019, we were delighted when we won the contract. And um, for the first six months or so, we were mobilising. But also, we had early capability within WDP because we had already uh, built a legacy around education, training and employment programmes. We had accreditations. We had various programmes support people into employment and we had some of that um, expertise internally as well which really helped to start the program off um, and then when we initially started it was in the eight boroughs and more recently we've actually um, had a contract extension and some money for um, extending to Hammersmith and Fulham as well so the eight boroughs that we work across are Barnet, Brent, Ealing, Harrow, Hillingdon, Hounslow, Kensington and Chelsea, Westminster. I, I, I love the fact that it was a, an alphabetical list. I'm so I'm so, I'm so happy about that. It really appeals to me. And as a resident of Brent, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to hear it in there up at the top, even though that is just because it begins with B. I suppose it's also important to mention that in the latter part of last year, there was some more money that went into IPS. So it's actually expanded a lot broader now to a lot of uh, more boroughs, but. Through the um, recommendations through Dame Carol Black and also the recent drug strategy, it's looking to be rolled out across all local authorities by 2025. And I think that's been such a big um, movement really in the sector. It's also validated like all the work that's been going on and how important this work is. So I think it's an extremely exciting time uh, for the organisation and many that are looking for the expansion of IPS across the sector um, because it is, it is just such an important part that's been really well recognised as well um, through the drug strategy. It's obviously uh, making waves. Uh, um, IPS, it, specifically IPS, on top of just uh, employment support. Um, so, so what is IPS? How does how does IPS work? What do you do? Yeah, so um, IPS stands for Individual Placement and Support. Um, and IPS originated about 20 years ago in the USA, and originally when it had come about, it was created for people with severe mental health to help them to get into paid employment. It's based around eight principles. Um, and the IPS model is an evidence-based model that had come to the UK. And it was used uh, predominantly in the NHS settings for mental health. And then it's come into addictions more recently as well. Um, for the IPS model, it is quite different from the traditional um, education training and employment models. It very much puts an emphasis on people's readiness for work. So if they feel ready, that's what's really important. They can come onto the programme. And it's an 
any point of people's treatment journey as well. There's also an emphasis on rapid job searching. So whereas, again, traditional methods may have waited to like get people into searching and kind of go to voluntary, this is very much like if you want a job, we'll be able to get you a job. And we start searching very much as soon as they come in, really. Um, It also works directly with employers to create opportunities and it's integrated into the treatment teams as well, um, which is really important. So it's to provide ongoing support for the person and also the employer so that it's sustained as well. So this project and IPS is about getting people's work that they want. So it's based on people's preferences. It's very individualized as well. And it's also focused on getting them into competitive employment um, with a strong sense of zero exclusion which I think is really key in our sector because it's not about um, recovery practitioners or other people deciding when somebody's ready for work it's the client deciding that they are ready for that job and they want to work as well. Yeah I mean there's, there's a big difference in quality isn't there there's a big difference between like uh, getting a, a job doing something that you enjoy something that you love that's that's competitive and that you can see a future in and, and having a series of jobs that you hate I mean like just any job isn't good enough really is it? That's what this particular program emphasises as well, is that when we meet a person, we actually spend um, two to three appointments with that person going through something called a vocational profile. And that vocational profile is co-produced with the service user and it's very much tailored on exactly what they want. So we cover things like their work history. What did they like about that job? What did they not like about that job? In their next job, what do they want to have in their job? What is their ideal job? What was that? What is their preferences? And it's very, very tailored to what they want. I'm not saying we can get every single person the job that they um, want if they come to us and say they want to be an astronaut, for example. However, um, I think what is important is that um, that intensive time, especially at the initial part for the vocational profile, is extremely important and creates that plan that both the employment specialist and also the individual wants to work towards the goals that's really important to them. Fantastic. I mean, so so getting into kind of a bit more of the detail, um, uh, Harge and Claire, um, where do you find jobs? Uh, I mean, I'm not asking for me or for a, for a hypocritical friend, but where do, where do you find the jobs that you, you then support people into, uh, Harge? So IPS has got a strong focus on employer engagement. And part of each employment specialist role is to contact up to six employers per week based on their service users' preferences and, uh, I guess, job aspirations. This this includes contacting employers in the local community, uh, local businesses and employers to to seek out possible opportunities. It's done in a variety of ways. So a lot of it's done uh, one-to-one and direct approach to actual employers through uh, online searches, regular attendance at community job fairs, and also we're... We're also quite well linked in with um, specific employment networks within uh, the local councils, really, and the opportunities that they have for local residents. So we can tap into those and put individuals forward for those type of roles as well. The roles we find are quite varied. They can be from local small independent organisations and all the way up to larger, uh, larger scale employers such as Amazon and Greg's. Uh, it's very much dependent on what individuals want, really, and that can vary for each person. Uh, we place people in bakeries in their local high street, uh, working with mental health charities and housing associations, to name a few. And we also look at local employment trends and the labour market uh, information 
and try to keep our service users informed of opportunities that are up and coming, uh, including sort of, I suppose, during the pandemic, there was the more recent COVID uh, vaccination opportunities uh, and we were able to put candidates forward for, for things like that as well. Uh, Claire, how does, um, how, how does that work in Ealing? Where do you, where do you find, uh, find jobs for people in Ealing? So when I'm doing my employer engagements, pre, pre-COVID and hopefully now we are, we are coming out of COVID, um, I was doing it face to face. And so I'd actually pop in and visit prospective employers and have a chat with them to try and find out what their employment needs are, what they are looking for in a candidate. And then what I would do is try and set up a follow up meeting with them. Um, Obviously, I would tell them a little bit about IPS um, and what we do. And then in the follow up meeting, I would try and go to them and present some um, prospective candidates that we have for them. Found that sort of employer engagements sort of particularly useful in a sense that by approaching the employers directly they don't necessarily have a job advertised so you're sort of tapping into that hidden job market as well where particularly with smaller businesses they might not have necessarily huge budgets um, for recruitment um, like some of the larger larger companies so that works really well obviously COVID sort of changed how um, I've been doing that a bit. So it's been more telephone and email and trying to set up meetings via Teams and Zoom. Um, obviously, we use more traditional methods as well. So job boards um, and registering with with uh, different job boards um, for individuals. And yeah, I guess it depends what they're looking for and would try to target that particular area. So if somebody is looking maybe to actually go and work in the charity sector, then I, I would potentially use tools um, and resources that are specific, specifically advertising jobs. Yeah, so also I think it's just worth sort of highlighting um, about the types of jobs that people get, um, which we've noticed in the programme as well, is that it has been so varied in terms of salary as well. So where we, um, we've we also had um, from entry level jobs all the way to very high exec level jobs um, that are paying 60000 plus. We've also had people go into their own businesses And, you know, I think all the job titles have also shown us that there's so much variance and difference of what people want to go into. So we've had over 250 job outcomes. And off off that amount, we've had over 150 different job types, (laughs) seven sectors. And I think it's really fascinating because having come from this um, ETE world for some time, when we used to do surveys and things like that, the things that we used to hear from clients is that they want to re-enter into the health and social care or they want to be a recovery practitioner or they want to be a counsellor and things. That was quite a typical response we'd get. But I think through our outcome data, we've actually seen how broad and varied it is. And although health and social care has featured on one of the higher percentages of outcomes, which was about 14%, we've also seen um, wholesale and retail at 18% have entered into that. Um, hotels and restaurants is 12%, the business sector is 7%, the education sector is 4%. And the job roles have just been so varied. And just as Claire said as well, you know, one of our boroughs, Harrow, for example, we were looking at their job outcomes. They had 50 job outcomes with 43 different job titles. Well, that was really fascinating. When you're speaking to prospective employers, and I'm really getting the sense that that's driven by what people need, rather than just kind of what you can find. Um, 
you know, presumably some employers are, are are very supportive and and want to kind of support what you do. Do you also experience some employees that are uh, perhaps cautious or like some of that kind of stigma towards people who use drugs? Um, and and how do you work with that? Do you kind of um, uh, do you help employers to kind of process through some of those uh, some of those thoughts? Uh, I think f- yes and no is uh, is the answer really for this one. Um, so it's very much dependent on who we approach and, and how we approach them, I guess. So in the earlier days of us uh, starting out um, the IPS model and rolling it out in, uh, during the mobilisation, our pitch was very much around our service user group uh, and that was met with mixed reactions. Uh, some employers we found were, were very sympathetic and understanding as uh, many related to knowing people in their own networks that had experienced issues around substance misuse and therefore had a willingness to to work with us or at least explore how we might be able to work a little bit more closely uh, moving forward. Uh, we were also su- lucky enough, uh, we were also supported by some uh, warm leads that the organisation had already built up through some pre-existing work. I guess there was also employers, however, that were uh, openly discussed their concerns and preconceptions uh, and others that had worked with uh, similar charities uh, and a similar client uh, service user group. So uh, I remember one Pacific employer had had an experience previously of uh, working with another organisation that was specifically working with individuals in recovery and placed uh, a handful of people in, into their um, company uh, and the outcomes hadn't worked out successfully. So there was a lot of uh, resistance and I suppose they just weren't keen to explore explore this option uh, with us, just having had some past previous uh, negative experiences uh, themselves. And most employers we found have been quite receptive and keen to uh, employ people from their local communities. It's probably also a good opportunity to to kind of address stigma and, and things when it when it when it arises, even if that's kind of you know small levels levels of caution or kind of absolute resistance um are these, are these some of the conversations that you have uh claire with with prospective employers absolutely so we would always um i think one of the key things um to focus on when we're speaking to employers is actually the supportive nature of the program so i guess um Maybe more traditional um, education, training and employment um, programs have once the person's gone into work, um, they may well catch up with that person maybe a few times to make sure they're OK. And then they would sort of the, the support tends to tail off. And I guess we one focus for me is ensuring that employers know that for us, um, that support doesn't tail off and that support isn't just there for the service user either. That support is there for the employer as well. So they can call us in um, and we could have ma- we can sit down and we can have meetings. We're also very open to going in and maybe talking to recruitment teams or even wider staff teams um, to try and talk to them about um, substance misuse and some of the barriers and issues that people may face, which... Yes, they are barriers, but they are barriers that can be broken down through people offering the, the sort of appropriate support and people really understanding what potentially could be going on for that person. And we do find that that, that sort of there's help um, very much so um, with employers, I guess, knowing that they've got us there for, for a period of time um, and to help with any issues that may arise. Um, it does, yeah, it provides that sort of that all-round wraparound support as well. So that's a big focus for us and definitely makes a difference, I think. 
I think it's one of the one of the things that I found really interesting about um, some of the uh, some of the bits that were in your report was about the kind of ongoing support that you give to people. So it's not just about helping people uh, into employment; it's about helping them stay in employment. Um, so, like over that kind of period of time, I mean, do, I guess it's a kind of two pronged question. I mean, how long do you support people for, and 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 what kind of nature of support does that take? You know, if, if someone say two months into a job and they're, they're perhaps uh, struggling in, what kind of support do you typically uh, give to people it, to help them stay in that, in that job? I suppose it's whatever the individual feels is beneficial uh, when they enter in paid employment and every individual is offered a in-work support plan uh, that is tailored based on their needs. Uh, as I mentioned, this can look very different for each individual on our caseload. Some ask for regular check-ins and support for example, a practical sport like uh, having enough travel money to get to work, uh, having the appropriate clothes or personal protective equipment they might need to, to start a job. We also have uh, many that continue within work support uh, as they aim to get another role and engage with programmes such as uh, skills escalators in local councils where they might be able to undertake further training. So we had uh, uh, an individual go in as a warehouse operative um, doing picking and packing, and he was able to access the skills escalator to do a forklift license uh, to increase his uh, pay and uh, prospects within the warehouse environment. And in terms of the time frame uh, that we offer uh, the in-work support, so we deliver the IPS, uh, a light model of IPS, so we have a 12-month window within which to support people. So they can, once they've entered into employment, uh, depending on how quick we can move them into employment, is the, uh, the remaining time in that 12-month period we can offer them as in-work support should they choose to uptake it. Um, I think we've also had a lot of service users that have gone into uh, a paid job um, but may not be exactly the, the paid job or it might be a part-time job and they want to find something more full-time and have uh, uptaken uh, in-work support in the form of uh, continued job search and approaching other employers uh, trying to support them into uh, more jobs closer to where they would uh, in their preference closer to their preference. You mentioned before um, about your work changing during the pandemic. So, I mean, obviously there's the kind of the lack of face-to-face and, and moving to online methods of support and, and conversations, and, and that's that's been seen throughout uh, treatment services. Um, but, you know, were, were you supporting people with quite unique issues like you know supporting people who might be on furlough or whose whose jobs might be changing or at risk because of the pandemic were you were you able to support people in uh, transition to working from home where possible um what kind of things did you uh what kind of changes did the pandemic uh, make uh claire yeah i mean i guess one of the key things was that we have always worked out in in the community uh, and that's where we have always engaged um with our service users and so obviously that was something that changed um straight away obviously once people went into sort of lockdown and isolation um where possible we have um always tried to do teams and zoom appointments because i think it is quite important even on that to have some level of face-to-face, I think it makes service users feel a lot more comfortable if they can put a face to the voice and the name, you know, because they are talking about very personal things with us. Um, that hasn't always been possible. Um, and where it isn't, we've adapted to, to phone conversations. But in, in terms of sort of work, 
we we couldn't unfortunately work with people that had been furloughed um, because unfortunately they were still um, considered employed at that stage. Um, but yes, obviously there were people that did lose their positions um, because of COVID and it was a case of supporting them in, in many cases to maybe transition into different types of work. I think there was definitely an increase um, anyway in the employment um, in terms of so much work had gone um, from office-based uh, to remote working. And we were able to support people into remote working roles, which actually worked out very well for some people where they might have had caring responsibilities um, and things like that at home. That's actually worked out quite well for them because it's provided something that's actually been a little bit more flexible to them. Uh, sorry, at one point, um, myself and two of my colleagues um, developed some online, um, sort of an online learning program and that would support people around developing CVs um, and sort of job searching skills, interview techniques. And we wouldn't normally do something like uh, group work like that, but it worked because it gave people that maybe weren't able to find work straight away. It gave them a little bit of routine. It gave them somewhere to, to go um, during the week, um, even though it was just online. It gave them that bit of interaction with other people who were experiencing the same difficulties as them, where their industries, you know, for example, hospitality, that kind of completely, that completely changed for those people. So yeah, we were still able to provide some things to, to keep people motivated. And I think that's was what, what was important when people had lost their jobs to, to keep them motivated during a period where things were so up in the air and people were very unsure. We, uh, we also developed a, a, a wellbeing support group initiative. Um, that was like an online group that people could drop in just for support. I think for us, we... Noticed during the early stage of pandemic, there was a, a lot of uncertainty and uh, uh, apprehension from our service users to to go out into employment in 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 a world we were unfamiliar with. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, there were there were times in the last couple of years I could have done with a support group for kind of the changes that were happening in works. I, I I can imagine that would have been incredibly helpful for the, for many people. We we learned a lot as well uh, as a team and being a remote service across eight boroughs. Um, having a team meeting sometimes was a lot of time spent uh, and energy for for uh, our staff across uh, all different boroughs to come to one central place. Uh, so I suppose we're just able to work a little bit more smarter uh, by using video conferencing uh, and uh, tools like that, which we have maintained moving forward. So uh, an area that I'm, I'm I'm really interested in, and I acknowledge that that many people are not. Um, uh, so, you know, if, if this isn't your cup of tea, maybe skip forward five to seven minutes or something. But I, I, I find it fascinating where, where you have um, interventions like this that are very person centred. You know, it, it, it's not a kind of off the shelf. We do X, Y and Z and this person has employment and they're supported into it. It's something that's very, very personalised. You, you, you create the plan according to that person's needs and, um, and interests. Um, but IPS, as it, as it is, is, a, uh, is an intervention that that is delivered following a set of guidelines. Um, and I'm always interested in the balance between the extent to which you can personalise something and how far you can personalise something before it, it stops becoming the thing that it originally was. Now, IPS, like you said, Rebecca, came over from uh, mental health settings um, and it's something that you've, you've adapted and implemented. And you're just about to go through this process of fidelity rating. Um, can you explain a little bit about about what that means, uh, about what kinds of um, areas that looks at and, uh, and how that works? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so fidelity rating for an IPS service is actually really important. It is a tool that uses a 25 item scale for quality improvement, and it covers a range of different things. And each item on that is scored between one and five. Um, and what it aims to do is, is get the services to get the best possible results. And the higher your scores are on this fidelity, the closer aligned you are to IPS. And it also means that you're, well, you should be um, having a much more effective service um, with it. Because if your scores are higher and you're more aligned to IPS, the results are better naturally as well. There's four ratings that a service could get with it. So you could get an exemplary a good, a fair, and not employment support as well. So we work really closely with um, a reviewer and we've actually um, been in talks with our reviewers as well, just to kind of learn as well, because it's not, it's not intended necessarily as an audit or an evaluation. It's intended as a development focused tool, which aims to improve like your service and work on the strengths of your service as well. Um, and the full review will typically take between two, around two days with two reviewers. And it's a range of methods that they use as well. So it's qualitative and quantitative. So they'll look at data and look at numbers and things like that, case notes and stuff like that. But they'll also do a lot of interviews. They'll do a lot of observations, see how your team meetings are run, um, check how your employer engagement is and things like that. So... Um... Is your is your fidelity review due? Have you just had one? Where, where, where do you stand on the two year cycle? Yeah, we actually um, because of co- when COVID hit, we were unable to do it um, when we had initially intended um, to have it done. But we are hoping that um, just before summer, we're going to have a actual official fidelity review for our service. So we've had some mocks. And we've also been doing them continuously from the start of the project because we're always uh, looking at fidelity as a team. It's, it's, it's lovely to hear the uh, kind of enthusiasm and passion with which you all talk about um, IPS. Um, and, and I think perhaps on that kind of more personal note, what was it about this area of work that first, first drew you to it? I mean, I suppose specifically in an employment, um, with an employment focus. For me, it's always been quite, it's always been quite a big part of people's recovery. I think um, it was Rebecca that said earlier, it is that thing of once people have gone through their treatments, where do they go after that? And I think even when I was working um, in the education um, training and employment um, part with that, with another organisation, it, it was really incredible to see people's journeys and, and how far they can come. And I think some of the most bizarre things have been, you know, when maybe I've been on my lunch break and, you're walking down the street and you just kind of get yourself a sandwich and somebody stops you and they say oh hello and you're you're sort of you know them but you can't remember where from and then they tell you who they are and they're like oh thanks thanks for your support because actually I, I got this job and then I did this and I moved on to this and their lives have completely changed and completely turned around and that's a really lovely thing to think that you know, even if you played a very, very small part in that, you know, even if it was just that you helped that person with an application form or even just put the job in front of them that initially got them that step up, um, it's a great feeling. And I think that's one thing I really liked about um, IPS was that it very much focused on employment, but also on the individual being ready for employment. No barriers are being put in their way. If they feel that they're ready, even if it's just to do four hours of work a week, 
um, I think that's a really positive step for somebody. And I think sometimes it's not always seen what a big step it can be for people. I mean, some some people I work with have, have genuinely actually not been employed for a very long time, just maybe a, a, a couple of months and they've lost their job for reasons unrelated to substance misuse. But then you've got people who who may have been unemployed for 10, sometimes 20 years. So that is a huge step for them. And so much has changed. It's such an achievement. And it's just nice to be a part of that um, and help people realise their goals, I think, and, and move forward from, you know, maybe what has been a negative point in their life and, and just be happy and, and be fulfilled in whatever they're doing. Um, uh, Harj, I mean, you had a very different, uh, a different work background, a different um uh, route into this work what what first uh, drew you to this this area i mean i think for myself i've uh, i've always found it very rewarding to uh, motivate and empower others um i've myself uh, i've done over 15 years of uh, direct support with service users uh, helping to develop uh, education training and employment pathways for them um and within that it's been service users from all sorts of uh, different backgrounds um, I think what really appealed to me about the IPS model itself is that uh, it did not discriminate. It, was, uh, it wasn't somebody telling uh, service users that you have to be well to be working. It was very much based on their motivation um, and then developing the right support around them to, to foster successful outcomes. Um, uh, fantastic. And, and, and just finally, to wrap up, um, uh, Rebecca, uh, where if people want to know more about uh, WDP's work on on IPS where should where should they look um so on our website we have got lots of information about IPS and what we're doing we've actually just recently published our impact report as well so our impact report has got a lot of, of the detail and information about what we've done but i think what's really important it also includes those audio uh, files where you can actually hear about the, from the service user directly what a difference this work is making to them. Um, we also um, have got things um, just on our website directly linked to it. So, for example, we've had a visit recently from Dame Carol Black. So you can just find out what's related to IPS um, on our website is predominantly if you want to learn about WDP um, about what we actually have but in the wider sector as well we have IPS Grow who have got lots of expertise um, and have lots of information as well um, more broadly around IPS positioning IPS and information related to it um, which I think they've got very useful um, resource tools and different things that they have on their platform that is definitely worth having a look at as well. So this has been going for uh, about three years now. Uh, can you share with us some of the uh, some of the particular successes or, or perhaps challenges as well um, uh, that you've experienced in those in that in those three years? When we first won the contract, obviously, um, I mentioned earlier that we had this early capability, which definitely helped us. But also, IPS was new to us, and we knew that, so we did have a lot of learning, and we did have to also sort of see how it would work in different boroughs. Because in the initial stages, we had some, um, and still do, which we had WDP services and non-WDP services who are treatment providers. And it allowed, I think one of the successes is allowing our model to work across different ways and different places, which has been really um, good. We've been able to adapt in different ways of working with another provider as well. And um, some of our successes 
the most obvious one is the outcome of jobs. Um, you know, over 250 job outcomes have come. And I think that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, very often we're working with a client group that is very hard. Um, well, far away from the labour market, I should say, like there's lots of um, complex need. There's lots of things that come up for our client group. And um, I think to get that amount of people into jobs is really amazing. And it's transformed so many people's lives. I mean, we had a client who uh, was in prison for 17 years and within around a six week period had got a job and same someone who hadn't worked for 40 years. And I mean, this is just some of the examples of where we're changing people's lives. Um, and that was recognized really well in um, the MJ Awards. We won the Transforming Lives category. And we also uh, won with yourself the SSA poster prize as well for inclusion, uh, which was really great for us. Um, some of the other successes have been our recent impact report. Having a visit from Dame Carol Black was amazing to really showcase some of the work that we've had. Um, Co-production has been really important as a success of really working and listening to people. And I think the other thing which we have um, learned along the way is partnership working is really important and um, we work really closely with the managing agent our commissioner especially where we have a lot of stakeholders in this particular contract and working in that way where we are solution focused together we work through things together has been really important for our project as well and um, the other things I think is our staff team's been extremely important in terms of a success they're dedicated they're passionate but I think one of the key things that has um, helped us is that that strong belief in service users and the values they hold is been really really key because um, you know some of the research as well shows that if you don't actually have the belief that service users can get work you won't get the same sort of outcomes which is obvious you have to hold that value as a worker. You have to actually believe that all your caseload can get work. And I think that's really, really important, having that aspirational view for all of our service users as well. It's interesting that you talk there about um, uh, uh, co-production and collaboration uh, across agencies, because that, that features really heavily in the drug strategy. There is a lot of uh, co collaboration that, that's going to be needs to happen if, if kind of uh, those visions are, are going to be realised. Um, so like with this uh, this drug strategy and the extra funds that are coming into uh, treatment services, uh, is this is IPS now something that you're going to um, expand or develop? What does the what does the future hold for uh, IPS? At the moment, we are the, one of the largest providers in addictions delivering it. We've got extensive experience for a few years and, and actually, you know, to set up an IPS service takes time. And I think, you know, it takes time to embed an IPS service to learn to actually have the right processes. Um, so I'd like to say that we are hopefully in a very strong position that, you know, there is going to be some expansion going on and we would very much like to be involved with that expansion. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we did uh, recently expand to Hammersmith and Fulham. Um, we're now in nine boroughs across London, uh, but we very much hope that in the coming times of when we find out more information that we will be able to be part of this and our extension money actually is part funded by the DWP and OHID as well and um, so they've also come in to be one of our stakeholders currently as well. Well uh, wonderful um, uh, thank you all so much for your time thank you Rebecca O'Dedra, uh, Claire Bowie and Harj Bansil.
Um, also thanks to uh, Kate Bonner and Natalie Davis for their uh, help in, in setting up and recording this podcast. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this um, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>